So we're going to continue in Genesis 34. I'm going to deal with uh, the issue of Dinah in that, which is a very hard thing, but I'm going to weave that with um, the, the uh, shootings in Nashville and try to deal with those in our sermon today. I don't often deal with current events, but I just think this is an important one, and it hits close to home. So um, I want to give you some input. I can continue in Numbers 26, which is the continuation of the second census in Numbers. Happy to do that. But I also um, have brought with me my notes from the book of Luke, and so if you'd like me to go through a triumphal entry in Sunday school, I'd also be happy to do that. So we've got, we've got one hard, uh, definite numbers, one I don't care, and one Palm Sunday so far. So that, that just, what do you guys think? <laughs> and if you don't give me a definitive, I'll just, I'll just choose, I guess. Uh, but John, what do you think? Oh, I, I, these notes in Luke are, are, I've taught them several times, so. I mean, if you've already to do it, well, then you'll have something next. I'm trying to Oh, he's trying to think of, there's John, think of me, make it easier on the teacher. <laughs> this would not inhibit me in any way, I've got all of my notes for the book of Numbers done, and I've got Numbers, or some Palm Sunday notes done too, so. Kate, what would you like? Very good. Okay, so there's a Palm Sunday vote. Um, uh, Coleman, do you care? Palm Sunday or census in numbers? I know which one you're going to check. Census doesn't sound too exciting. What's that? Oh, what a, what a great, flexible guy. Howard and Melissa? Palm Sunday? Melissa? Oh, going with Howard. Very good. Uh, Junior? Okay. Clark and Lee? <laughs> the numbers notes are, more, are fresher, but I probably know more about the triumphal entry. <laughs> There's a lot of questions I still have with the census. So, uh, Pains? Okay. All right. I think the Sweets? It's all good, okay, all right, all right. Well, we're going to do Palm Sunday today, and we may not get back to numbers until um, after Easter, I don't know, because I may do something special Easter-wise um, next week. So we're in Luke 19, Let's just read 28 through 40. Um, let's give a microphone to Mary Dunn. Since she had to sacrifice going through numbers, we'll give, give her the, the ability to... 28 through 40, Mary. Okay. 
And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. <clears throat> okay, so we'll start with, in verse 29, the, the question about location. So we need to talk about Bethany, we need to talk about uh, Bethphage, and we need to talk about um, Mount of Olives. So what do you guys, t- uh, you guys have probably all these special notes in your Bible and stuff. What can you tell me about Bethany? Any information about Bethany? Eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. So I guess, let's see. Um, here's uh, Mount of Olives. So it's like the eastern slope, so it'd be here. And then um, here is the temple facing Jerusalem. Okay, does that make sense? So this would be like the western slopes of Mount Olives would be facing the temple, but this is on the eastern slopes. Okay, what else do you know? Uh, Yes, we think, yet this is uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived in Bethany, so that, you know... um, From Luke 24... Uh, you can turn there real quick. Luke twenty four fifty. What are we told there? Yeah. So this is in some sense near here, where the ascension takes place. At least um, we won't get in all the different passages on the ascension. Because some of that gets confusing, but from as far as Luke is concerned, that was there. Um, the uh, this would have been about two miles from Jerusalem, and it is so. He is not in Jerusalem, but he is close to Jerusalem. Um, what about Bethphage? We drew near to Bethphage. So, like, you know, they're, they're close by, 
Bethphage is probably a little closer uh, than Bethany. But what do you know about Bethphage? Probably not as much, right? So, uh, the only, I think, significance of this is that this was considered within uh, a Sabbath day's walk. So, you could, you could still go to the temple from Bethphage, but you couldn't, it'd be too far walking, according to Levitical law, um, from Bethany. Uh, I don't know a whole lot more about those. We do know a lot more about the Mount of Olives. So what do we, what do you guys can tell me about the Mount of Olives? Old Testament, New Testament, whatever you can tell me about the Mount of Olives. You can use study helps. I know you guys have got all these reformed study Bibles. Pull out your phones if you have to, uh. Uh, I don't think so. You know, good, ca- good guess, but I don't think so. What's that? So why do we think that Jesus will return from there? Because that's true, or to there. Well, it talks about the mount being divided east to west. And- uh-huh, yep, yep. And it's, it is the place, since we know that the ascension takes place here, and they're associating that with the Mount of Olives, so where he goes up, there he will come back down, okay? Um, Acts 1 uh, tells us explicitly that he ascended from the Mount of Olives. Um, okay, that's good. Some other things. They used to go there to pray a lot, right? And that is also where Jesus spends the night in Garden of Gethsemane, his prayers. So the Garden of Gethsemane is in this location somewhere on this mountain, um, it's a couple Old Testament things. Um, these olives, right, Mount of Olives, these olive trees were used for what purpose in, the, in Leviticus? Huh? Maybe anointing, but uh, oil for the lamps in the temple, right? This is a close connection to the, the temple, so they would harvest olives for the temple, the lamps in the, in the uh, uh, tabernacle, I mean the temple. Also, the Mount of Olives, I'm, my scale is not perfect here, but the Mount of Olives was higher than the temple, so it was a great place to look down upon the temple. It overlooked the temple mount. Uh, 2 Samuel 15.30, turn there real quick. Yeah, and what's David doing? Yeah, he's he's running for his life, and he passes through the Mount of Olives. So again, symbolically, it would then make sense that the king of Israel would come back through the Mount of Olives on his return, right? So this there's symbolic value here, okay? Uh, no, Zechariah 14.4. Go ahead, that's good, Melissa. Go ahead and... Oh, nine, nine, go ahead. I did not have that one written down. 
Right, so that's, that's clearly talking about this. Does it, it doesn't actually mention Mount of Olives, though, does it? But, but that Zechariah is important because then if you go to Zechariah 14.4, flip over to that one. Okay, Okay. so this is what Clark was referring to, but this is that the, the righteous Messiah King will come and from Mount Olives actually judge his people, right? So um, the Mount of Olives has all kinds of symbolism with the temple, all kinds of symbolism with the Messiah, all kinds of symbolism with redemption, and all kinds of symbolism with final judgment, right? So that's... All of that's happening. Uh, the, the disciples, this is, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 24, 3, in Mark 13, 3, the disciples are sitting on the Mount of Olives when they ask questions about the final day of the Lord, right? So they're sitting here looking at the temple, asking about the end. So, so can we say that this is a pretty significant location? It's not just... Uh, haphazard. It's not just uh, Jesus comes in this way uh, accidentally or because it's convenient. He is truly making a statement by coming in on this in this direction. Uh, he is purposely declaring himself to be the Messiah. That's what he's doing. So. Uh, he is the son of David, um, those sorts of things. Okay, so um, he sends two of his disciples uh, in front of him. What's their job? Find a colt, right? Find a, a donkey. And, and since we already read prophecies in Zechariah, we know why he's doing that, right? Right, because he is fulfilling prophecy. There's sometimes Jesus uh, fulfills prophecy without trying. You know, it's just things happening to him. Uh, when he was a baby and uh, Herod tries to kill all the babies in uh, uh, Bethlehem, it, Jesus isn't doing anything as a baby. I mean, he's obviously orchestrating everything because he's God, but he's not doing anything. But this prophecy, him coming into Jerusalem, he is purposely... Uh, consciously fulfilling this prophecy. It's not just an accidental thing. He's, he's doing it uh, very purposely. Uh, so then he's, if anyone asks, what are you doing? Why do you need this animal? What are you supposed to tell them? Yeah, and even there, Lord kind of has a double entendre. Like, you know, it could just mean Yahweh has need of it, right? But it can also mean... Messiah, me, the king, has need of it, right? So you see those things happening. Um, won't spend too much time on the cult. Um, the uh, Genesis 49 is a um, prophecy or a, the blessing that, that Jacob gives to his kids, and he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
you know, the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his ass's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. So, not, not I'm not going to try to go into all the ins and outs of that prophecy, but big, big picture things. He's going to be coming on a colt. Uh, there's there's uh, pictures of blood in this time. Now, that could be blood of judgment on his people, or as we know with the cross, it's going to be shedding his own blood for the salvation of his people. But, but again, and then the Zechariah passage that Melissa already read, uh, speak about those. So when we think of a, uh, a donkey... Our image of donkey is what? Stubborn. A work animal, right? Uh, we don't think of a donkey in terms of royalty, do we? So usually when we say that Jesus is riding on the donkey, what are we saying about him? He's humble. And I think that's accurate. I think it's true. Um, and uh, I don't have it, I think, written here. Um, but there's a place in the Old Testament, you have to trust me on this or you could check it later. Uh, but uh, Solomon rides a donkey. So it's not, donkeys should not be thought of in terms of only like a servant would ride a donkey. Like this is not a denial that Jesus is king. He's not like, oh, I'm not really king, I'm just a servant. It is his humility, but uh, I've heard it, I don't know where, if it was in seminary or somewhere, but that uh, you had a war horse and the king, when he was riding out to war, would use a war horse. But in times of peace, he would ride a donkey. And that's what Solomon does, that he's actually coming in at this point, declaring peace. If you go to Revelation, who's the righteous? What's he riding in Revelation? War horse, right? So, um, so just don't think donkey, like the last thing you want to ride, uh, they would... Kings would actually ride donkeys, and it would not be, be a symbol of peace rather than war, okay? So that's going on here. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus, in, in essence, is declaring himself, even in riding the donkey, that he is king. And the, the religious leaders understand this because they want to kill Jesus because of this. When they see him coming in this way, they are irate with him. So, uh, he's, he's riding in uh, uh, from this place, Bethvage, moving into uh, Jerusalem. And what do the people do? They spread their cloaks on the ground. And this is where we get the Palm Sunday because there were some palm branches, but there were also cloaks. And so the people, the, the masses of the people are acknowledging him to be their Messiah. 
This also makes the leaders angry. <clears throat> now, I have to, I'm not sure in my notes where this comes in, but I'll preface it now. We know that the same people who are putting their cloaks before them, at least some of them, will be the ones who will be yelling, crucify him. So, uh, the expectation of the masses in worshiping Jesus and declaring him to be the Messiah is not, not something of, we truly understand our sin, we're truly repentant of that, like John the Baptist called people in the, in the Jordan. It's more of, we believe he is going to overthrow the Romans. And we believe that he is going to make life good for us again. Uh, that's, that's what's going on with them. But it is still, Jesus doesn't disdain it, even though they're wrong, uh, in some sense. And there could be some people there that are truly worshiping him. So I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it could be a mixed bag, okay? So, um, the whole multitude rejoicing, praising God with a loud voice. They have seen his mighty works, and they are declaring, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So you can see kingship and peace make sense with the donkey, right? He, that, if you want you to understand that, that symbolism. Um, <clears throat> Let's see here. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, oh, first, the other thing I want you to get to is uh, Jesus is heading towards uh, Jerusalem. There are, so um, here he is, Christ. There are crowds behind him, and there are crowds coming from Jerusalem, meeting him. So they're coming both directions, you know, and, and uh, some are coming out, some are falling in behind. Uh, it, it's pretty powerful. I mean, this is like, everybody is excited about this. Um, and then in verse 39, what do the Pharisees say? Yes. Now, now, what do they mean by Jesus rebuke your disciples? What do they, what do they think is happening? That's terrible. Blasphemy, and it might be that he's saying he's God, but at least he's saying, "I am the Messiah." And so the the Pharisees are saying, "Tell your disciples you are not the Messiah." Right, tell them to stop this. If you started throwing up uh, cloaks uh, down for me to walk on when I come into worship, you should run. You know, you should get out of here because lightning may strike. Right? I mean, this is terrible. So Jesus is not the Messiah. Everything that they're saying is true, uh, but Jesus, instead of saying, "Oh no, 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 you're right. They're just a little bit overzealous. Let me try to correct them. Let me try to fix this," what does he say? Those very stones will cry out. Um, uh, so his subtle way of saying what? 
It is true. I, I should receive worship. Um, you know, this, anyone who argues, and this is in our day and age, people argue, oh, no, Jesus never thought himself to be the Messiah. He never claimed to be God. That's only something the church gave him later. All those kind of things. It's just ridiculous. I mean, he declares the very vitriol. It's not just that it's written in Luke, but the very vitriol that the leaders had and the impetus by which they felt uh, righteous indignation. That'll come out in the sermon today. They felt righteous indignation to kill Jesus is because they believed that he was calling himself the Messiah. They would not have done these things if he said, no, I'm not it. You know, they weren't, they weren't doing the same thing to other people. saying this uh, uh, offhand, they're, they're quoting the messianic scripture. Right. Right. would have been making an entry into Jerusalem in this general, same general time. Oh, and I didn't know that. This is the new information. Well, yeah, keep go, going. Go oh, he, make sure the mic's right in front of him. So Herod, can... Herod came for the Passover. So he would have been coming the same direction, probably. Well, or from the opposite direction. Or from the... <laughs> possibly, but, but yeah. and he possibly could have been riding a war horse. And it's possible that Jesus got a bigger reception than Herod did, Ooh. which would not have sat very well with Herod. Ooh, that, that's good. Did everybody hear that? Just that I've never really contrasted that with, with King Herod, that uh, Herod didn't typically reside in Jerusalem. That's fact, and he, um, he would have been coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, whether he would have been coming through the Mount of Olives or another direction, we wouldn't know, or even at this time when he would come, but it's obvious that Jesus received a much bigger reception than Herod, and there would have created even more jealousy and animosity there. I thought that, that's really good. Thank you. It's helpful. Uh, what what tremendous work, stupendous work does Jesus do just shortly before this triumphal entry that that is really uh, stirring up the crowds? Like what what is the great work that he does? I mean, he's done miracles all along, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, so he just raised somebody from the dead, uh, and so that has got them stirred up. You would think that the uh, Pharisees might go, oh, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Maybe he is who he says he is, but no, that's not the way they, they look at this. So, um, mighty works that they had seen. So, I mean, the whole crowd is stirred because of Right. And, and wouldn't you, if somebody had the power to raise someone from the dead, wouldn't you expect victory, like, in the coming week? So you can understand why his, like, willingness 
to uh, submit to trial and rest, it would be so disappointing to his followers and why they would be mad at him. If this is who you are, there's some argumentation, and I, I don't know, I, I don't, I'm not uh, advocating this, but it, it, it has a, a hint of truth to it that, that uh, part of Judas's um, uh, frustration with Jesus is this very thing, that he, he, Judas is figuring out he is not going, he's not taking the reins and winning the victory like he wanted him to. And he thought that maybe pushing him uh, to an arrest like this would, would in a sense evoke him to, to rise up and finally do what he was supposed to do. I don't know if that's true, but, um, but it is true that most people felt what is going on? Why are you not conquering? You know, why are you not defeating our enemies? Uh, so, okay. So then, you have to understand this context. Jesus has, on the one hand, incredible praise. I mean, there's praise everywhere. I mean, the most praise he's ever gotten is happening right now. He does have the the Pharisees opposed to him, so the religious leadership is opposed to him. But if Jesus wanted to at this moment, at this moment, even not even considering that he is God and can do whatever he wanted, but, but just as a man, do you think he could have overpowered the Pharisees at this moment? I think he could have. So he comes in to Jerusalem in verse 40 near, or 41, and what does he do, though? He weeps. So this is the $24,000 question. Why is he weeping? He's got the most praise he's ever gotten. They wanted him to be a natural king. He could be weeping because they don't understand the need of their own spiritual salvation. I think he is weeping over this. He knows these same people are going to yell crucify him in just a week later. So that's part of it. Any other reasons? So the sin of the, the, the city as a whole, just their, their lack of desire for true godliness. Uh, also, I think there, it, it grieves him that the religious leadership... Because he doesn't, Jesus doesn't just look at Israel as, let me get a few people out. He's looking at the whole of Israel, and he is the king of all Israel. And so it should be right that the religious leadership should receive him at this point. And so he's, he's weeping because they are not receiving the one who could bring them true uh, righteousness. So John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Uh, this, I think, helps us to understand election within election. So, so, like, I think even the people that are rejecting him are in some way elect, because they're part of visible people of Israel, so they're the outward people of God, and so it's appropriate for him to weep over them because they're his. Uh, go ahead. <clears throat> do you think it had anything to do with the overall collapse of 
Israel, Jerusalem in 70 AD and him seeing, because in Matthew 24, he speaks a lot of about what's coming. And it just seems to me like maybe he's looking too at the overall picture of Israel rejecting him, the one who throughout all of the history of since Abraham, mm-hmm. they were his people and they're going to, even after his crucifixion, reject him. Yes, yes. And now, ascension. So I'll, I'll kind of a, a light bulb experience to me. Uh, you can evaluate it yourself. But, you know, Jesus, when he's here on this, his ministry on earth, and people are blaspheming him and telling him, you are not the Messiah. He's doing miracles, and they're in the face of his miracles. They're saying, you are not the Messiah. That is blaspheming the Son of God. And what does Jesus say about blaspheming the Son of God when he's here on earth? Trick question. What? Absolutely not. (laughs) She said no forgiveness. Every sin, every blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But then he goes on and says, every blasphemy against will not be forgiven. Okay, so, um, of course, that then throws everybody into, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Um, And and if you go on the internet, someone will say, well, I reject the Holy Spirit, therefore I have blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, I think you have to connect the blasphemy against the Son with the blasphemy against the Spirit. Uh, redemptive historically. So before Jesus' death, many people hated him and did not believe in him as the Messiah. In fact, when he's up on the cross, what does he say to the people that are hating him? Father, for they do not... Right. So, okay, does that... Consistent, they're blaspheming the Son of Man, they're mocking him, they're spitting him, they're even crucifying him, and he's saying, Father, forgive them. Okay. 70 AD occurs, and that is clearly a judgment of God against Israel. Jesus prepares for this because he tells his disciples, the keys of the kingdom are being given to you. Before this time, who had the keys of the kingdom? The Levitical priests, the Sanhedrin, they're the ones that allowed people in, set people out, they controlled the sacraments, all those kind of things. That, they were the ones. Now Jesus is saying, oh, no, 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 you guys have the keys of the kingdom. Okay? So he's clearly defining that there's going to be a removal. Jesus says things to the, while he's here on earth, even what you have now will be taken from you. He's talking to the unbelieving leaders of the Jews and stuff. Well, why, I believe that the reason, the progress of why this occurs is because of the book of Acts. The book, in, while Jesus was here on earth, he was bearing witness to himself and the works that he was doing. But when you get to the book of Acts, it is all about the work of the Holy Spirit. And many of those works of the Holy Spirit were done right in front of the Jewish religious leadership. So there's a crippled guy right at the temple, and he wants alms. And Peter says, I can't give you money. I don't have money to give you, but what I do have, I give you. And he raises him up right in the front of the face of these Jewish people. Now, Peter says, I do this in the name of Christ. So now when the religious leaders continue, even after the crucifixion, 
there are these miraculous works of the Holy Spirit doing, being done right in front of the Jewish leadership, and they still refuse to believe. In fact, they call Peter in, and they tell him, don't ever call, don't, don't preach the name of Jesus anymore. And he says, well, I can't obey you, I'm going to obey Jesus. It is their uh, decided rejection of Jesus working through the Holy Spirit of his followers that I think brings 70 AD upon them. And, uh, and if people refuse to, even in our day, refuse the testimony of the Holy Spirit working through the church, there's no hope. And I'm not saying just reject it once. I'm saying if you repeatedly and refuse to actually uh, respond to what God has done through his people, um, there is, there's a final judgment, and that's just the way it is. You can't get around that. So, I'm astounded that Jesus performed so many miracles in front of the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. There was plenty of evidence that God was behind it. They had already dug in their heels against mm-hmm. God, mm-hmm. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. He had no chance with those guys. And, and uh, it's just, uh, I, 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 I'm kind of surprised that Jesus didn't respond to that particular spiritual stance uh, openly. I mean, I guess he did. He called them all sorts of names. <laughs> but but it, not in the way a powerful God would respond to them. Well, he calls them children of Satan. Yeah, that's pretty strong. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he yeah, calls right. him a brood of vipers. I mean, he does, he does pretty <laughs> stolid stuff then. But, 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 but let nobody me, accepted what he let said me kinda, about that. Let me respond to what you're saying a little bit here. And this gets at election within election, okay? So when you said the word, and I'm, I'm, I'm just speaking words, when he had no chance with them, it's not true. Jesus can save anybody he wants to save, period. And when he does save somebody, he overcomes all of their resistance. In fact, if you are today believing in Jesus Christ, picture your heart before Jesus uh, redeemed you as just as hard as the heart of the Pharisees. That's, that's redemption. Like, he can save whom he wants to save. So then you run into this, and this is the, there is a, there's a tension, there's a, there's a ridge line you have to walk when you talk about election. It's easy to say, well, these, these Pharisees were outwardly elect, but they were not inwardly elect, and therefore Jesus must not have any real love for them. He must not really care about them that much. He's not affected by their rebellion, because if he was affected by it, he would actually bring them all the way in, because he has the power to do that. But I don't think that's the way the scripture views it. He weeps over Jerusalem. This is similar, the only way I can bring it into your hearts is when an adult believer watches their child go into apostasy. Not just fall into a sin for time, but just walk away from the faith. There is a, there is, on the one hand, the parent is like acknowledging that, that God, you're still praying for God to save them, you want God to save them, he has the power to save them, but he's not saving them, and so you're, you're like, you're almost, in a sense, having to submit to God's sovereign plan, and at the same time, your heart is utterly grieving for them. And I think that's what Jesus is doing over Jerusalem. He is weeping over these people. 
It doesn't mean, oh, he's not God. He wants to save them, but he can't. I mean, he's still sovereign God. He's still the one who has his election within election, but he, he truly cares about his people. Otherwise, the visible covenant doesn't matter. And the visible covenant does matter. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Do you see how that works? Um, and I think that it's not a denial that there's an election unto salvation. And, that's, and how do we know when somebody's elect under salvation? We don't know 100%, but we, we can read the signs. Fruit of the Spirit, repentance and faith. You know, are they believing in Jesus? Are they, are they acknowledging their sin? Are they, you know, I, those are the kind of things that you look for. They're evidence. Now, do you know exactly? There are some people that I will, I've talked to and I've, and I've seen a positive response. I was talking to a guy this week who's close to death and, and, and you know, talking to him about the gospel. And he seemed to say, Yes, I believe that. Up to this time, he hasn't believed it. Well, it gives me hope that he's, that he's responding, but, but God will judge the hearts of men, and he will know perfectly if they've truly trusted in him or not, and we have to allow God to be God and acknowledge that we have, we have good evidence sometimes. Sometimes we have a little shaky evidence. You know, it's, it's up and down, but that's why we know somebody's elect. We don't know their elect before repentance and faith. We only know that they're elect through repentance of faith. But we're okay with believing that there is a, there is a visible making you a people of God uh, through baptisms, why we baptize our kids. They're members of the covenant. They're in, uh, but they're not necessarily in here yet. And you have to keep praying for God to work the redemption in their hearts. So, so here's Jesus, and, and these kind of... You know, when I first accepted election, it kind of made me hardened to anybody who just rejected Christ. You know, I didn't think about the visible covenant that much. But when I got to him weeping over Jerusalem, that was very formative in, in like rethinking how I think about the visible people of God. He is truly weeping over them. Um, <clears throat> questions or comments on that? Take no delight. I take no delight in the death of the wicked. That's it. That's an excellent. And uh-huh. I think he's yes, They're especially his own children. Like you, you think was he indifferent when Judas goes out to betray him? No, I think he was. He was broken. I mean, that had to hurt him so much. And yet, you can't go so far as to say Jesus couldn't do anything about it. He knew it from the beginning. He even told his disciples, "One of you is not really mine." But yet, so that's it's allowing yourself to live with that tension. Uh, with God, that he, he is in control. He can save whomever he wants. He's not strapped by our own hardness. Uh, we have to have that hope. At the same time, we also can't say that he is indifferent to the rebellion of his own people. There's a great, great love that he has there. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yes. Save. Yes. You said, we talk about Jesus being able to save whomever. Mm-hmm. But, That's John 6, yep. But it's his father mm-hmm. who gives him 
the elect. Right. So, so you have. What we would call elect, we would call the saving election. That's like, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never lose them. So that means 100% of the elect will be eternally saved. Okay? But... There, uh, throughout history, there is a visible people of God. And the way that God speaks to his visible people is you are my chosen people. You are my son. You are my bride. All these language. He doesn't say, uh, you might be my bride. He just says, you are my bride. You are my elect. Knowing that there are some in this in this area, who are of the visible, who are not truly of the invisible church. And you just can't get away from that tension. I try to tell people uh, this argument between the Reformed Baptists and, and me. And I don't, <laughs> it's uh, Presbyterians in general. But like, we, we agree on so much stuff, but we, the, the Reformed Baptists don't like us giving the covenant sign to those who might be here which is what we're doing with our kids. We're, we're, we don't know that our kids are born again. We don't know that they have a living faith, and yet we, we believe that they have a right to the covenant sign. We don't think the covenant sign means something different for covenant kids than it means for adult believers. If the sign's the same sign. He doesn't say, okay, here's one for kids, here's one for adults. No, it's the same sign because it's a sign of salvation. And I often teach you that that the sign actually calls you to question, am I here or am I here? Your baptism is supposed to say, am I, am I truly washed in my heart? Am I born again or am I not washed in my heart? Am I just, did I just get some sprinkling on my head or has the spirit actually washed me? I would argue that if you were baptized as an 18-year-old or if you were baptized as a infant, you still have the same question to ask. Because it's possible for someone to walk an aisle to say that they believe in Jesus Christ and not have an enduring faith that goes to the end. And so we all have to ask this question, am I here or am I here? But the Bible teaches those in the visible church that all the promises belong to them. They're yours. It's not like, well, I've got the outward element of the promises, but I don't have the inward element. The Bible just speaks to the visible church as if they're his. And that's why, like in, is it Peter says to the whole visible church, everyone who has been physically baptized, you are a chosen people, a people belonging to God, a kingdom of priests. And I can say that to the whole church. Do I know whether Mary Dunn is absolutely saved? Well, there's a lot of good fruit there, so I'm pretty confident. Might not be as confident in my heart sometimes, you know, or maybe Gary, he's a little shaky sometimes, you know. But that's, I don't have to, as a pastor, always be exegeting that because I know that my God will sort it out in the end, sheep and goats. He knows who are his, he's not his. You know, he's going to do that, and I allow that. And so when it comes to my assurance that I'm saved, I'm not trying to figure out election. I'm trying to figure out, is the fruit of the Spirit working in my heart? That's what I'm asking. So, 
So what I'm getting at, Lee, is we can use the terminology of elect to include all of this, or we can use it to include this. And remember, Jesus is saying that when he's speaking that in the book of John, he is saying that to everyone who has been circumcised. They're all Jews. They're all in the covenant. This is why, like, um, he's saying, you can't come to me unless the Spirit draws you. Saying, well, we're already children of God. I mean, that's what the, the Pharisees would tell him. We're sons of Abraham. You know, they think they're already in. He says, no, you've got to be born again. So he's talking to Nicodemus. And he's, he tells Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you're not getting into heaven. If you don't go from here to here, you're not getting in. Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, you are a teacher of Israel. You of all people should know this. Because in the Old Testament, it was taught. It was taught that if you are not, um, have your heart of stone removed, right, Ezekiel, and it can be given a new heart, you're not, you're not in. But he's saying that to all the visible people of God. So there's this, yes, I'm in, but am I really in is a real challenge that we all need to, to ask throughout our lives. So, and if you don't have that, if you try to remove that, I mean, I've heard people, it doesn't matter. I've heard people use their baptism this way. Oh, I was baptized, therefore I'm in. Or they use walking down an aisle. Oh, I walked down the aisle when I was 16, I'm saved. Well, you don't, you don't love God at all. That doesn't matter. I walked an aisle. No! That's not, that's not salvation, right? But if you have somebody who's just sinned, like Peter, who abandoned Jesus in his trial, deserves wrath, he knows he deserves wrath, and then when the Spirit brings conviction on him, he just cries out to God for mercy, the same covenant promises that were promised to him in his circumcision or in baptism are just as real now that he is repenting and trusting in Christ. King David is another example of this. He was a covenant man. He was in the covenant. He was a servant of God. Falls into deep sin. He doesn't need a new salvation. It's the same covenant promises that were given to him at the beginning. He's just going back and saying, I need these. Help me. Redeem me. So ah, there's so many different angles on this, but there's just the idea that you, you just can't, you can't get away from there's, there's two ways in which God looks at his visible people. Uh, Jesus knows who's his and who's not his. He's not losing any of his people at this time. Um, but he is grieving over the rejection of his visible people uh, over their uh, hatred of him, their unbelief in him. It's, it's, he feels that. And I think that's true. I think it's why covenant parents don't see all their kids always saved. It's part of the way in which we actually enter into the, the emotions of God. He, he, it's not like, man, God never felt this because he always knew who were his and he only loved those who were his. What I would tell you, and this is the last thing I'll say right now, um, <sighs> I can say that God loves the world. I can say that he loves even people outside of here. I don't, I don't have a problem with saying that. He loves them. I think there is a special love, kind of an ownership love, 
that he feels over his visible people, which is what we see here on the, on the uh, weeping over Jerusalem. But I think there is a special love for these elect. This is, this is the highest love. This is the greatest love. This is where Paul says to the Ephesians, Oh, that you would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God. He's talking about this right here. He's not talking about that or this. He's talking about this. Because this is the love. I'm receiving them. I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. It's a greater love. It's a supernatural love. So this is the highest love, special love, love for the world. I think all those exist. But the love that he has for his elect is, supersedes them all. And that's why I'm a Calvinist. Because I think he's done this. He's overcome my hardness. I would be the Pharisee. I would be the, the thief on the cross that still mocks Jesus if it weren't for that love right there so does that answer your question Lee because this is a tension I mean it's, it's not easy this is hard stuff to, to uh, the world is just so loose and if you think that the love that he has for the lost is the exact same love he has for you, you'll never be astounded by the love he has for you. So. <clears throat> uh, very quickly, Jesus goes into the temple, and what does he say? Yes. So there's lots of ways they've doing, done that. They've done it maybe by corruption. But the temple was not supposed to be a place that kept out truly sincere worshipers of God. But the Pharisees did that very thing. Do you think the Pharisee would let in uh, a Samaritan who was truly repentant and wanted to come to the temple and worship? No way. They were keeping out of, you know, Jesus Christ, when he dies on the cross, he's the temple. Is he just going to be for those who are the visible people of God, not for the Gentiles? No, he will receive anyone who sincerely comes to him in brokenness and repentance and bring them to himself. Um, Isaiah 56, 7, don't necessarily turn right there. He, he gives his life for the nation. For the Gentiles. And again, you can run the same gamut. There are some in the Gentiles whom he has elected, 
Lydia, I think it says, uh, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. They come in, but then you still got some people who believe the gospel, at least outwardly, who are not truly saved. I think of Simon the Magician might be one uh, case where they come in, they're baptized, and yet they're not truly saved. Um, maybe Ananias and Sapphira were another example of this. They had the, the visible sign of uh, baptism, and yet they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and God judges them. But anyway, the point is, Jesus wants his, himself and his temple to be the place where people come to God. And one of the worst things that you can do is use the keys of the kingdom to keep people out. How terrible that will be. We want the worst of sinners to come into this church. Not just the ones who look good outwardly. Any who will come to Christ in brokenness and repentance, we want to come into this church. And I think that's part of the reason why Jesus is so upset. Because he knows this is, they're, they're, they're actually making people separate from his grace. And that's what he hates. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the text of Scripture. It is the truth. It cuts us sharp, Lord. It, it, it hurts uh, Cuts to the quick in our hearts. We are guilty. We are stubborn. It is only the grace of God that draws us to yourself. And uh, Lord, we pray that your fruit of your spirit might make us humble, might make us broken, might make us hopeful, um, and, and we would cling to Christ all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.